Hey everyone, welcome to the Being Patient Podcast. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. When my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I decided to use my skills as a journalist in a different way. Frustrated by the lack of information on science and the inability to get different expert opinions, I decided to quit my job at the Wall Street Journal to create a better platform for people impacted by dementia. We are a community where news and information is created by our team of journalists. We ask tough questions and we simplify the science so that anyone can understand. We don't only cover disease, but delve into the latest research on what it takes to keep our brains healthy. We invite the experts and ask your questions. Here's today's podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. Today, we're going to talk about seizures and cognitive decline. Um, I guess it's not really a coincidence that we hear um, from a lot of people in our community uh, who have a history of seizures and um, also relate that to cognitive decline. So today we are speaking to the University of Virginia's Dr. Ifra Zavar. She is a specialist. She's a neurologist um, and specializes um, in, has a lot of clinical research um, focusing on seizures and epilepsy. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Zavar. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really look forward to and exciting about this uh, talk. Okay, so I guess just to kick it off, I've heard it both ways. I've heard of people who have been diagnosed with dementia experiencing seizures, and I've heard of people who have epilepsy or seizures um, who also experience cognitive decline. Um, chicken and egg scenario, uh, both related. How how do you? What is the relationship with with seizures and cognitive decline? So exactly as you've heard, the, it is the chicken or the egg paradox when it comes to seizures and dementia. So exactly like you said, it's a bi-directional relationship. People with dementia are at a high risk of developing seizures. Um, and there are multiple mechanisms underlying why that might be, because, you know, dementia involves uh, neuropathological changes in the brain. Um ongoing injury in the brain, or possible inflammation in the brain, all of those can predispose patients to seizures. So the more severe the dementia, the more likely they are to have seizures. On the flip side, just like you said, people with seizures also often, especially with uncontrolled seizures, often experience um, cognitive impairment and cognitive decline. The vast majority of our patients do have at least some degree of mild cognitive impairment. And as they continue to age, they can even develop dementia. So it is a bi-directional association. Often the seizures, um, the reason why seizures are often associated with cognitive decline is because obviously it's kind of like an electric circuit um, that's going haywire and it's firing off erratically when it's not supposed to. Often it can involve the memory portions of the brain. Over time, once the memory circuits continue to become involved with seizures, that can contribute to memory decline, cognitive decline, and cognitive impairment. 
Okay, I guess maybe I should have backed up a, even a little bit further and ask you, do we know what causes seizures or epilepsy for that matter? I mean, actually, let's even define epilepsy. Is epilepsy um, a dis actual specific disease or does that refer to repeated seizures? So epilepsy um, basically is defined as recurrent seizures. So two or more seizures, which are more than 24 hours apart, uh, are defined as epilepsy, are patients who have a single seizure, but they have a 60% uh, percent or higher risk of seizure recurrence. They also are categorized as epilepsy. And then there are certain epilepsy syndromes that we know of uh, that present in, with a certain set of symptoms together. If patients have one of those, then again, they, they, they are categorized as epilepsy. So epilepsy, like you said, is basically recurrent seizures uh, but they don't necessarily need to have recurrent seizures. Sometimes just having a single seizure and increased risk of recurrence can also qualify for the diagnosis of epilepsy. And that means that the patients require treatment for uh, in, in those situations. So do we know what underlying cause actually contributes to seizures? So seizures can happen from a multitude of different causes. So they can happen, um, some patients may have structural abnormalities that can be visible on the MRI. Um, sometimes child, childhood strokes, um, tumors, um, anything that can impact the brain really. Trauma, traumatic brain injury, motor vehicle accident, or something that can impact your brain. So really anything that can impact the brain can cause seizures. So the three examples that I gave you, like a stroke, um, tumor, um, or cancer that spread to the brain or started in the brain, or like traumatic brain injury that resulted in damage to the brain are three examples that I can give over here. But there are a multitude of other things. For example, in childhood, if 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 especially at birth, if there is a birth trauma, um, then the patients may have higher risk of seizures later on in life. Um, sometimes uh, malformation of cortical development, the, just the way that the brain forms um, during uh, the nine months in utero can also lead to seizures later on in life. And there are some genetic predispositions that can lead to seizures, but they don't always have to be. Uh, genetic as well. So there are a multitude of reasons why seizures may occur. And dementia is just one of them uh, um, in older people. Dementia, again, is like a progressive disease that will impact uh, brain and therefore can also cause seizures. What part of the brain uh, do seizures involve? Um, they can really involve any part of the brain, depending on where the injury is or where the malformation of cortical development is. Or um, often, they one of the more commonly involved regions is the hippocampus or the memory portions of the brain. They tend to be involved pretty commonly, especially in older um, adults. It's just the kind of epilepsy that they develop. Um, temporal lobe. Epilepsy is the most common type of epilepsy in older adults. But like I said, it doesn't have to be. It really depends on the region that's impacted by either a stroke or a trauma or a tumor that the seizures can develop from that region. 
Well, I'm I'm just thinking about the the chicken and egg scenario. Um, obviously, we know that Alzheimer's impacts the hippocampus, right? First, yes. yes. Um, so I could understand why that would be complex, especially in regard to dementia. Um, what's cause, symptom, cause or effect, right? Yes. Um, do we know anything though about um, when you have seizures? Is you know we know the biomarkers of Alzheimer's are beta amyloid plaque, um, tangles, inflammation. Uh, I heard you mention inflammation previously. Do we know if any of those markers actually have an impact in increasing, uh, specifically increasing seizure risk? So that's a wonderful question. Um, scientifically, in the world of clinical research, that question is still unanswered. But there are some animal studies um, from like rats and mice that have shown that increase inflammatory markers in key increase, just like you said, amyloid, uh, sorry, lower amylo uh, amyloid, increased tau, um, the kind of pathology that you see in Alzheimer's disease um, can predispose um, animals to a higher risk of seizures. So that has been shown, just not in clinical studies. And it's just something that we are now beginning to study more and more. Uh, typically, epilepsy or seizures are diagnosed with an MRI and an EEG. Um, we typically don't use a whole lot of other markers. If we suspect like a genetic underlying predisposition, sometimes we may do genetic testing for seizures. But you are absolutely right, especially in the context of dementia and seizures and seizures and dementia. It's becoming increasingly important to understand how these biomarkers, which are biomarkers of dementia, may impact seizure occurrence, um, but do, ongoing studies. Not I guess we, what I'm curious about is, we do we know what percentage of people diagnosed with dementia have seizures? Up to 64% of people with dementia may have seizures. Wow. Um, various studies will show numbers ranging from, interestingly, from like 0.5 to 64%, but seizures are underdiagnosed in people with dementia, extensively underdiagnosed in people with dementia. So this is um, great. This leads into the next question we're getting from Allison. Hi, Allison. Um, can we assume that if someone's dementia symptoms have a sharp increase, there could be undetectable seizures? Could an undetectable seizure cause temporary dementia-like symptoms like global amnesia episodes? Good question. Yes, that is an excellent question. So um, like I said, seizures are often underdiagnosed in people with dementia. Um, and when I'm talking to my patients, what I ask them is to look for things like which are episodic in nature, because that's the nature of seizures, right? Um, so the reason why seizures are under-recognized in people with dementia, because dementia patients have ongoing cognitive decline, they have ongoing confusion, they have ongoing memory deficits. Often when they have episodes of worsening memory deficits, or when they have episodes of staring when they have episodes during which they're confused, their families or even their care providers, even their physicians may dismiss the, this as just uh, episodic worsening of dementia. But those can definitely be seizures. So the way seizures present in younger people um, and the way they present in older people tends to be different. So older people, especially those with dementia, will typically, I mean, they can have bigger convulsive seizures as well, but they don't need to. So the seizures tend to be very subtle. 
They're often very episodic ep episodes of staring during which the patient may not respond for like respond for like five, 10 seconds. Episodes of confusion, which may be worse than their baseline dementia. And exactly like uh, she said, uh, so the term that we use is, it's called transient epileptic amnesia. It basically is a type of temporal lobe epilepsy that will present in older people. And just as the name implies, it, it's going to have transient episodes, uh, which are epileptic in nature. So they are seizures, but they present with mild or like complete memory loss for like five, 10 minutes. Often patients will wake up from sleep and they will have no memory of anything for like a few minutes and then they will regain that memory. These patients are often, may not even have underlying dementia. They will get diagnosed as dementia when they're just having episodes of transient memory impairment, which are truly just seizures. Um, and then even in people who have dementia, they can have, just like she asked, transient worsening of memory, transient confusion, just some staring episodes. But anything that is transient or episodic should always raise concern for the possibility of seizures, especially in older people and those with dementia. Okay, but I guess my next question is, how the heck should people know? Like, how do you know? How, how can you diagnose this, right? If it's not like an apparent seizure, how do you diagnose it? Um, I guess staring episodes can also happen without seizures, right? So, it, I mean, it, yeah, but if there are enough risk factors, so I would say, yeah, diagnosis can be a huge challenge. Just like you said, if you know of someone, someone is having staring episodes during which they are clearly not responsive. It's not that they're just, you know, lost in their thoughts, but clearly not responsive. It would be some a time when you want to discuss that with your neurologist, or if you don't have a neurologist, then you should be seeking a neurologist. Um, there are subspecialized neurologists, for example, like me, I'm a neurologist, but I have further training in EEG and epilepsy. But even general neurologists, if with a good history, should be able to at least suspect the possibility of epilepsy. And then they often pursue the workup that is required for seizures and the diagnosis of epilepsy. I right. will also go on to say, if I suspect somebody to be having episodes that are concerning enough, um, because again, since they are episodic, we may not record them on the EEG. Um, I may not be able to see them. If the suspicion is high enough, um, I would err on the side of starting patients on seizure medications. But for the patients, the next step is to at least seek um, a neurologist to um, provide the extensive history that they have, things that they have noticed to get their opinion and at least get the appropriate workup. Yeah, okay, we're getting lots of great questions. So I wanna get to them. Um, one is, does inflammation of the lining of our brain cause seizures? Can it cause seizures? Yes, so inflammation of the lining of the brain is really meningitis uh, or the infection of the lining of the brain either they can increase the risk of seizures, but there are many patients who have had inflammation or meningitis who may not ever develop seizures. But yes, they can increase the risk of seizures. Okay, and then um, Ellen is asking, are very frequent myoclonic jerks an indication? I guess what that means, you know, sometimes when you're sleeping, you kind of do that, right? Is that what that means? So the sleep, when that jerk happens in sleep, 
like a lot in sleep. It's typically what we call a hypnic jerk or a sleep myoclonus. It's typically a benign thing that happens during the sleep-wake transition. Nothing worrisome. But if it's excessive, it's definitely worth pointing out to the physician. If it happens during the daytime, then they should definitely um, consider the possibility of seizures and epilepsy and um, reach out to a neurologist. Okay. And um, Joanne is asking, how does this um, differ from TIAs, especially in vascular dementia? Um, good question. So um, maybe tell people what TIAs are before. No, I'm not sure everyone knows. So TIAs are transient ischemic attacks. Um, the, um, so they are kind of like a smaller sibling of stroke where stroke will present with certain deficits like speech impairment or weakness of, of part of the body, um, which may result in permanent deficits because or permanent damage uh, of the brain. Transient ischemic attacks, on the other hand, as the name implies, are transient in nature. So they are just episodes during which the patient may have certain symptoms. Um, so underlying pathology is different because transient ischemic attacks typically happen because there may be lack of blood flow to the brain for a small period of time resulting in that episode. But often when patients do present with transient ischemic attacks, um, we do entertain the possibility of epilepsy as well. And then neurologists will do their exam and like get their history to tease out whether this seems more consistent with transient ischemic attack, which means the blood flow was temporarily compromised to the brain for some reason, resulting in some certain weakness or speech impairment or certain deficits that went away versus the possibility of seizures. Um, altered awareness, I, I think it's, it's definitely hard distinction between TIAs and um, seizure-like episodes something that perhaps is best made by a neurologist. But I would say if they are otherwise intact, but they are just staring blankly or have profound altered awareness during that episode, I would perhaps be a little bit more inclined to think that these are seizures rather than um, TIAs. Okay. Um... So Ben is asking, um, in a case where EEG does not capture the seizures, but they continue occasionally, what are the benefits um, and or risks of medication? That's a good question. So EEG, in, because, unless we do a long-term EEG in which we keep the patient in the hospital, which we do sometimes if needed, um, we are often not able to record the episodes, right? Because if somebody has once a week seizure, unless we keep them in the hospital for a week or like send them with a long-term EEG, we'll not be able to record seizures. Um, like I said, if we suspect um, the seizures, the chance of seizures is high enough, we do discuss the trial of medications, um, especially if the episodes are happening repeatedly and if their risk otherwise are high. Like if somebody has a history of stroke or something on the MRI, then I it's more likely that they are truly seizures. And then we also have to watch for the response to medications, right? So if they have like two seizures a week and then, or like some episodes we didn't record in the EEG, we started the medication, the episodes improved significantly, 
that's another way that's implying that they were probably seizures. Um, but coming back to the benefits or risks, so they vary from medication to medication. Uh, not all medications have the same um, side effect profile. It is really a discussion between the patient and the physician and the decision if they are okay to um, tolerate the side effects uh, of the medication or not. But I would say this, if the patient does truly have epilepsy and it's highly suspected by neurologists, then epilepsy is a risk factor for death. So yeah. with a phenomena which is called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, it is one in thousand, uh, but it can happen. So we tend to err, and again, it will, like I said, it'll depend on the discussion between the patient and the physician. And often we, if the medications are causing side effects, we may switch them to a different medication, which are more tolerable to the patients. Uh, but because of the risks associated with uncontrolled seizures is so much, can be so much higher. Uh, we prefer for the patients to be on medications. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I want to get to more of the treatments that are available to people. But first, um, I want to get to a question that was asked um, from Philip, who asks, um, he says he was diagnosed with benign myoclonus, I have no idea what that is, um, around 1990, and Lewy body dementia in March of 2023, and he's wondering if there's any known correlations. Um, I don't, I'm not aware of um, a known correlation between benign myoclonus um, typically benign myoclonus, as you may be aware, uh, we don't do anything about it unless it's significantly bothersome. Um, what is it exactly? Just so people know. I mean, they may have subtle jerks, which are not found to have any EEG correlate. Uh, like I said, sometimes they can oh. happen in sleep. Right. Okay. Um, and they, we just, if they're not bothersome, uh, we typically tend to not treat them. So I am not aware of a correlation between benign epilepsy and Lewy body. Um, if there are some studies out there that I may not have read, I don't know about them. But actually, it'd be really interesting to do a survey on that with our community because, you, as we know, REM sleep, like acting out your dreams, is a very big symptom of Lewy body dementia. So yeah. you know, I, I know it hasn't been researched, but it's yeah. a possibility. It would be interesting to see from our readers and viewers um, if other people have had the same episodes. Yeah. yeah um, you're right. So I have a question about treatment. Now you're talking about medications. You you were referring to drug medications. I personally have read studies about epilepsy and the ketogenic diet. Um, ketogenic, just for our viewers, is when you eat very few carbs. It's mostly um, protein-based diet and vegetables, um, which forces your body into ketosis, which is where you burn energy from fat for fuel. Um, and ketones actually cross the uh, brain blood barrier. So they're an alternative source of fuel for our brains. Do we know if, um, and I've read scientific reports that say that um, actually ketogenic diets have been quite successful in controlling epilepsy. What's the connection there? And is that a viable treatment to people um, who, who might be seeking one? So, so ketogenic diet is an approved FDA approved treatment for epilepsy. We often use in um, kids, pediatric population with epilepsy, because, you know, um, they will not object to if you, you will feed them ketogenic diet. 
because the ketogenic diet that we typically use for epilepsy is a very extreme version. The thought is that um, the glucose, the presence of glucose in the brain can increase the risk of seizures, which is reduced by if the predominant um, substance that it, ketones are there, then that risk is reduced. So ketogenic diet is certainly approved treatment uh, for people, certain kinds of epilepsy. It's, it's the first line treatment. But for other types of epilepsy, it's something that we may try after a few medications if the patient is open to it. Most adult patients um, are not, do not want to and are not able to tolerate ketogenic diet because it, like I said, the ketogenic diet we use for epilepsy is not uh, the ketogenic diet that people use for weight loss. It's a very extreme form of uh, diet, which most patients are are not able to tolerate. But it is, it is a treatment for epilepsy and can certainly be tried if patients are up for it. And I have some adult patients who are doing ketogenic diet in addition to their medications. Okay, so uh, question <laughs> about the medications. I mean, I had a dog with epilepsy and I remember we had to give her phenobarbital. Is that still the standard of care, that class of drugs, which I think are bar barbiturates, right? To control yeah. epileptic seizures. Is that the kind of gold standard go-to medications that people are prescribed? So phenobarbital is one of the older generation medications. It is still, I see, um, especially when I see some of the older patients who've had epilepsy for 20, 30 years, they'll be on phenobarbital. Um, it is still a very effective medication. So some of the patients, especially in the ICU who have ongoing seizures, which are difficult to control, who may still use phenobarbital or other uh, barbiturates. Um, and it, uh, but now we have so many other options, like 20, 30, 40 years ago, phenobarbital was perhaps like the only or like one of the few medications over the past 30, 40 years, we have so many um, seizure medications. We have now 30 plus seizure medications. Some of them are older generation like phenobarbital. They have more side effects compared to some of the newer generation medications like levetiracetam, which tend to have minimal interaction with other medications. Um, every medication has some side effects, but most of these newer generation medications are better tolerated um, in terms of side effects um, and interactions. So we have a wide range of medications now. Um, so do we know if, I mean, and this is not, I, I'm guessing you don't know the answer to this just because medications aren't tested um, on dementia patients. Like there's not a lot of research with med medications and how they interact, but is there um, in terms of treatment, a different treatment for someone who's been diagnosed with dementia than someone who has not, who doesn't have dementia, but seizures? Uh, good question. Um, so there, the studies have shown that typically for older people with epilepsy, this is not about people with dementia, just older people with epilepsy, lamotrigine and gabapentin are considered like the first line of medications. Uh, just like you said, that the seizure medications have perhaps not been studied that extensively in people with dementia, but there are some studies that have suggested that levetiracetam um, is something that can be tried. Lamotrigine is another one that has been considered. Um, levetiracetam is typically pretty well tolerated. Sometimes it can 
worsen. Um, it can cause some behavioral side effects. So for people with dementia, one has to be a little bit more cautious. Um, but the studies that currently exist are mostly about levetiracetam or lamotrigine use in people with dementia. Um, and again, the use will vary. Um, so, so at least right now, there is no uh, clinical guideline that tells us that people with dementia, seizures in people with dementia should be treated differently um, in than people without dementia. But I, I would say that we have to, as we move forward, take frailty into account. And frailty is basically um, impacts patients' tolerability of medications. So in my practice, typically I would start patients on a lower dose of medication uh, in people with dementia and go up as tolerated compared to somebody who wouldn't have dementia. But it's just something to consider. But in terms of medication choice, I don't think there's like a huge difference. It's just the way we start and perhaps go up um, that may be slightly different. And and let me just follow up by asking, uh, you know, what should people know about these types of treatments? I mean, what should the expectation be? Like if you're on medication, no seizures or an occasional one, like what is the outcome typically when people start treatment um, to control the seizures? As a neurologist, do you expect like, is your goal like zero seizures or is that not realistic? Um, what What is the gold standard there? So... Um, in general, in epilepsy and seizures, um, up to 65 to 70% patients become seizure-free on seizure medications. So if you treat around 100 patients, 65 to 70 people should be completely seizure-free, um, which is a decent number. The good news is that in older people, and then there are people who are can be very difficult to control. They are the remaining 30 to 35%. They are what we call if they fail two medications, we call them drug-resistant epilepsy. They may have to look at other options, including brain surgery to get rid of seizures and those kind of things. Um, but the good news for older people and people with dementia is that typically their, their epilepsies tend to respond well to medications. So my goal as a neurologist will always be to make the patient seizure-free. However, it is really a collaboration between the neurologist and the patient, right? If they're not able to tolerate a higher dose of medication than a certain, they're they're like, okay, I'll, I'm okay with one mild seizure a month, but I don't want to go up any higher than this. Right. And then, so it's really working between them, but my personal goal is always to make my patient seizure-free, but I have to look at other aspects, including their tolerability of medications and how open they are to consider brain surgery if they're not responding to medications. Okay, and finally, um, is this could repeated seizures actually um, make cognitive decline worse? And if you treat the seizures, does that take care of the cognitive decline, or um, what should people's expectations be? I mean, you know, does it accelerate dementia? Um, is the cognitive decline reversible if you treat the seizures? So the second question, uh, maybe I'll start with the first one. So um, so we have seen, and I will not say how much, I don't know how much the seizures are contributing definitely, but we have seen an association between recurrent seizures compared to remote or resolved seizures 
that's what I was presenting at American Epilepsy Society, actually. When we compare recurrent seizures patients in the, to those who have remote or resolved seizures, um, the time to cognitive decline is much shorter for people with recurrent seizures. So it does seem like there's an association between recurrent seizures and accelerated cognitive decline. Now, uh, we don't have enough research done in this area for me to tell you if we can reverse it. Um, so typically, if a certain degree of cognitive impairment has occurred, um, it, it varies from patient to patient. It depends on how much. So some patients are solely experiencing cognitive impairment because of ongoing seizures. Once their seizures get under control, their cognition may improve significantly. But if they also have underlying structures that have gotten significantly impaired in cognition, then it may not improve. So it's a very case-to-case -case basis, but um, there are no, not enough studies that have been done to show that control this accelerated cognitive decline that we are seeing in recurrent seizures compared to remote or resolved seizures, if this is if this can be controlled if we were to. But I would, as an optimist, I would imagine if the recurrent seizures have an association with early cognitive decline, then for me, it's another reason for me to get the seizures under control for my patients. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Ifra Zavar, um, for sharing your knowledge. Um, we wish you all the luck with your clinical research. Um, definitely come back and tell us more. This is obviously, judging from all of the questions, a topic that is um, of great interest to a lot of people in our community. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was wonderful talking to you and answering everyone's questions. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. And to you too. And if you've missed any of this interview, of course, we post it on beingpatient.com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. That's when you hear about experts such as Dr. Zavar uh, coming and sharing um, their expertise. Thanks everyone for watching and have a great weekend. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on upcoming interviews, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at beingpatient.com. That's B-E-I-N-G-P-A-T-I-E-N-T dot com. And send us any feedback you may have, whether it's someone you want us to interview or any comment about our podcast series. You can do so by emailing info at beingpatient.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Deborah Kahn.